What is up, designers, and welcome back to Grand Design. Um, in this episode, man, you're about to peek into a conversation I had with Evan Stewart. Um, Evan Stewart, man, in this podcast, so he was telling me about this one time. You know, it was him, uh, and he had his first big business. Um, it was a business he started. Um, it was an $11 million business, eight-figure business. You know, he was doing most of the work as the leader of the business. And he had three little partners in the business that weren't doing as much, but still had equal ownership. And um, there, come a point, there comes a point in time running this first big business opportunity that he has where those three guys, they band together and essentially boot him out of his own business. And if you fast forward a few weeks later, he's in the Target like in the parking lot of a target like you know like literally breaking down because he doesn't know how to how he's going to like get enough money to pay his $800 apartment rent he's a studio apartment he was staying at and uh everything that he built up had fell apart okay which having gone through something like that you would think those type of circumstances would produce a lot more different of a person than who Evan is but man, this podcast, you know, this conversation might have been one of the, it's one of the, my favorite conversations that I've ever had. You know what I'm saying? Um, because talking to Evan is like, I don't know, talking to like a monk on a mountain. Like he is in a weird way. You you probably can't detect this from this pod, from listening to this episode, but he's almost like an embodiment of peace. It's such a strange thing. You know, having, you know, multi, you know, running a multi-million dollar business and being in the center of Dallas in the middle of a bolster city, it is a feat to be able to maintain the clarity and the peace and alignment that this guy has. You know, his face is always relaxed with a light smile, calm, peaceful eyes. His body is relaxed. His, you know, he's just at peace 24-7. I've never met somebody like that. And it's a super strange thing. But to get more into more concrete evidence, you know, information about Evan, man. Evan, I believe I read somewhere. I don't know if this is true or not. Evan, you know, he ran, runs a $35 million book of business. You know, he has um, really three main branches to his business, which is the Obsessed Conference, um, Obsessed Academy, and Obsessed Academy Online, which all accumulate to really do one thing. Um, and that's to draw the gifts from people and then align an organization or structure their organization to most efficiently explore those gifts and share them with the world, um, which is what we talk about in this podcast. But even beyond that, we go over a lot of Evan's life, a lot of his early life and um, growing up upper middle class, upper to middle class and creating his own detrimental circumstances because of that. Having a rich uncle being obsessed in loving music as his first love. He's a classically trained concert pianist. And so he played piano essentially all of his life until he ended up breaking his arm and then played his final piece and said goodbye to it. But even beyond that, he works on other parts of music. He plays his own his own sound. He DJs at his own like events, like which is kind of crazy. Like we talk about it all from that to dropping out of college to finally building that business and all the business adventures that happen in between. Um Evan Tiggs is on a journey in this episode, and I really can't wait to share it with you all. Um, I appreciate you, Evan, man. Thank you. Thank you for coming on this podcast. I really appreciate that. It means a lot to me. I think a lot of people can benefit from your experience and from your life. Um, 
So if y'all want to um, learn more about Evan, though, I'm going to leave all his stuff in the description, you know. I want y'all to all go to the Obsessed Conference that will be happening probably April or something like that. Look out for that because you'll probably be able to meet me there. I'll more than likely be there. Um, look out for Obsessed Academy and Obsessed um, Obsessed Academy Online, which is the virtual training element of Obsessed Academy. Um, but yeah, all of that and his Instagram at Real Evan Stewart, all of that will be down in the description box if you want to follow along and learn more about Evan. Uh, but without further ado, man, I'm going to get into this episode and send you away to the theme music. If you enjoy this episode, please, you know, so we can, we can boost up the iTunes algorithm, whatever, whatever they say, man. Please rate and review this podcast episode and uh, subscribe to this podcast if you want to hear more. Um, but here's the theme music, man. I appreciate you listening along. Thanks. How do people like us, the visionaries, the creatives, real people with real ideas, people who don't have mass budgets, platforms, or teams, and people who live in this noisy world dominated by internet gurus, influencers, and big brands, the people attempting to make a dream on our own dollar, how do we get our ideas to pierce through all the noise in not only a massive, but a massively profitable way? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Dallas, and this is Grand Design, the podcast about taking the ideas in your head, pushing them out into the world, and informing the Hey, we can do whatever you want, man. I'm, I'm, I'm just happy to be connected. <laughs> yeah, we, well, run, the record's running now, you know. That's good. Uh, so, what is up, designers? And welcome back to the Grand Design Podcast. The podcast is all about taking the movements outside of your head and pushing them out into the, uh, into the world. Uh, and today we have on Evan Stewart. Now, he has a superb amount of credentials. Um, but more than anything, Evan Stewart's... Uh, He's a nice, he's a kind and nice person, but a firm and strong person. And um, he's a guy that you want to come to when you need to be guided on the path to living in your giftedness. I hope I said that in the way you would say it, but anyhow, you know, he's the host of the Obsessed Conference and the Obsessed Podcast and uh, the owner of Obsessed Academy. And so, Evan Stewart, thank you for coming on the show today. I actually appreciate it. I forgot to say that in the intro, but uh, I'm <laughs> kidding, but yeah, I really do appreciate you coming on, man. Thanks. And I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm glad we can make this happen. You know, I think it's, uh, it's times like this where the world is going crazy with COVID, but it also brings great people together, you know, over an opportunity for yeah, us to for connect sure. across the United States. And so, uh, thank you for the kind introduction. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I really am. Absolutely, man. Um, so much to talk talk about today. You know, I'm interested in obviously a lot of the past and a lot of the accomplishments, but even more like the spiritual element because, you know, I've, I, I can see like, and I can feel from you that you've taken a lot of that serious. I don't know whether that's, you know, daily routines and strategies that is leading up to this cultivation of peace. Um, but but it's, it's, it's a lot different than anything I've experienced. But starting, you know, from somewhat the very beginning, um, where do we start? I guess we should start with piano. You've grown up playing piano and taking piano very seriously. You've played to a, you know, um, I'm, your last piece was like a Chopin. You've played about nine minutes as you described. You've played to a very high level. You know, it, it's something that drove a lot of your younger experience. I remember in the Ruben podcast, we were talking about playing to the sounds of thunder and trying to replicate it. Sound and music 
is something that's um, something that's close to your heart, man. So, how does that begin for you? You know what I'm saying? How, how, how does that how does that love for music begin for you? Is there a piano just sitting around your house that you happen to learn, or were you kind of guided, you know, through that pathway by parents? And I. I... I actually really appreciate you asking that because of course, man. so often I'll have conversations about my work, but one thing is something you can love and one thing is something you do. And, and I love my work with OA, but typically it starts with the, hey, let's talk about the real yeah. estate company and all that. And that's all fine and good, but you're right. My first love was actually, was actually music. And mm -hmm. I have a family, I'm, I'm blessed to have a family where we're together. I have brothers and sisters and a father and a mother yep. who were all together in the same home. And, and so the reason that I mentioned that is because I believe that all creative things begin with either a, a really high amount of love and kindness or a really high amount of, of hatred and depression. And those typically, both of those emotions can spur off and stem incredible, incredible works of art. And yeah. for me, I, I had an opportunity to be raised in an environment where it began with love. And there was just a piano around and, and I just started finding, for me, it was an expression like you heard on, on that one show. It was an expression of what I was hearing around. I just started playing around and, and hearing notes, but I found more and more as I just was screwing around that it was an opportunity to actually express the things that my, my words couldn't, which is ironic because now I do so much speaking. Yeah. Music has this unique place to be able to articulate the things that no other expression can. Mm -hmm. And I found that for me, I was, you know, you, you grow up and you feel different things and your emotions are all over the place and you're going through different seasons of life. And I found that I constantly could go back again and again to piano. And so I would play and I would learn how to, I would hear something and I would teach it to myself. And then eventually I had this thing that would go behind the keys where I could see notes and I used that because yeah. I, I could never really read the music, but I could hear it. So I knew the expressions and how it was supposed to be played. And yeah. um, it, I finally, finally got a piano teacher for that one piece, the Chopin's Grand Polonaise in E flat major, my final mm -hmm. concert. And finally got a teacher for it because I thought, okay, if we're going to do this thing, we're going to do it right. And right. Uh, it would irritate her so much because I would never reference the time signatures or I would just kind of know, but obviously it was an interpretation. So I had to go back and reteach myself some basics through yeah. this ungodly complicated piece and yeah it was it was a good time man it was a good time I, I actually don't have a piano in my home currently but my wife and i were talking about that that that's right. something that's going to have to change pretty soon because i sure mm -hmm. do miss it um where where is it in your future i mean what i mean how do you in the first place end up tapering off of something that you love and how did, and how did that transform throughout time like your love for it because obviously you grow into teenage years and um you know, your palate for what you love uh, in terms of music begins to develop, you know, and a lot of people there, you know, the popular things that they want to do is like, oh, I want to be a musician. But mm -hmm. classical forms isn't something that's, uh, it's not like a, like, it's, it's, it's not a mainstream idea anymore. So yeah, no. how do those things change throughout time and where, where do they taper off? Mm. Well, the interesting thing is, I think with all great things, if you do them long enough, and this is what happened to me, and I'll explain this in a second, is you hit different moments of conclusion. And then after the conclusion, you have to restart. But when, you're, when you restart, it's a different way. So like, for example, if you're in a relationship with an individual and you and this person go through something incredible together, 
whether it be an incredible world-changing experience, a traumatic experience, an experience of great compassion and love and presence, that's a conclusive statement. And you and this individual, the relationship shifts after that moment because you just can't, it's like a reset. You can't go mm-hmm. back. And for me, the, the, my musical palette developed and it got further. And, and in high school, I had an opportunity to get creative in other ways and it expanded into additional compositions. And I played with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra and debuted a bunch of music and had it in some stories and started kind of going on the, that path. But that final piece, Chopin's Grand Polonaise in E-flat major was important because I had, that you might remember, I, I had broken my arm mm-hmm. at the time and I had two degrees of movement in my left arm and I couldn't move my fingers. In fact, actually, I do that just now for, for those that are watching the video. I did that and I, my pinky still tingles when I, when I move it like that. Wow. Um, and so the nerves in my hand were all screwed up. And so for me, that piece was not just a performance. It was the, the that piece at the end. If, for those that are wondering, it's the end of The Pianist, the movie, that when the credits are rolling, that's the piece. Ooh. And when I saw that for the first time when I was young, that was what inspired me. That movie right. was what inspired me to get that's into That's crazy, it. man. And so what, what happened was is I, I couldn't move my arm. Doctor said I would never move it more than a couple of degrees. So I'd always have kind of this L. And for me, I thought, okay, I've got to figure this out. So it was the time of the strain of moving my right hand just perfectly. It was awesome. And then my left hand, I'd, I'd try and move and I, I'd miss the note yeah. or, shorter, or the finger would be numb. And when I would hit the keys for the longest time, I would hit the keys and it would hurt because my nerves are readjusting. And so it was this huge experience of getting my, my arm back, getting my expression back, getting my personality back because my identity was grounded in this art for so long. Yeah. And at the conclusion of that, I stood up and I was so overcome. I actually didn't touch it for touch piano again for the longest time because it was so conclusive and such a beautiful moment and a beautiful expression of all the pain and the hardship and the hundreds of hours of practice and therapy. And um, that after that moment, it tapered off, but not in a bad way, like I lost it, but in a way of, it gave me a moment to breathe And I knew at some point I would focus on it again, but the time just wasn't then. And Mm -hmm. so my, my musical expression, obviously music is something I still am very connected with it. It shifted a little bit. It went into high energy when I went into electronic production and I got a little bit of momentum there, had about a million plays, give or take on some records and did some tours. And, and uh, you know, now I'm in, like with the conference, for example, a lot of people don't know, but my hand is directly over. Uh, I'm actually producing the record for the next event, and it, my hand is directly over yeah. a lot of that artistic direction. So I have these different mediums to lean into that artistry, which I think is so much fun. Uh, and one day it'll come back around to piano again, but it never really got deleted. It just manifested into different forms and different tastes of that expression. Yeah. It's interesting. That's, that's, that's a lot right there. Do you ever, not, yeah, do you ever fear, you know, um, because so often you hear in these different podcasts, um, like Casanova from uh, the Dream Nation, you know, he started up with a little bit of music and then uh, he moved into real estate. Um, similar to uh, J. Cole just put an article in Players Tribune. Um, his career is obviously rapping, but you know, he's six four, he had a career he wanted a career in the NBA. Do you ever fear that life will 
begin to run its own course because you have so much to do so that you have so much to be intertwined with so much so to the fact like to the point where you'll never be able to express music you know to the world musically how you want it to do you ever feel that way yes but there are two different trains of thought that i can answer that in more depth one train is deeply grounded in my conviction which is very faith-based and one train is very agnostic which do you prefer whichever you prefer i don't know man <laughs> i prefer i don't know i don't i, I don't want to offend anybody in your audience for me it, it, it comes back to faith, which is the answer is yes, but if I'm leaning into my calling and my purpose and my giftedness, which is a reflection of God's need and God's direction and God's purpose, then the answer yes. is, is no, because there's an earthly desire and a spiritual desire. And my earthly desire is to do the things that fulfill me. My spiritual desire is to do the things that fulfill him. And so for me, that answer is yes, but there's a period on the end of that statement because I always have to position it with, I believe that if I'm leaning into purpose and calling and potential and what God needs from my life, then my life will be lived to the fullest potential because potential is yeah. a reflection of, of his movement. So that's my answer. I'm not saying it's the truth, but, right. um, but that's, that's always the paraphrase I have with that because I struggled with that for the longest time of I've got two really solid strengths. I'm very creative and I can produce, I, I believe quality artwork. And then I'm also extremely good at business. Like, man, I can, I can run a sales team, you know, and, and they don't exactly go together. And so for me, for the longest time, I was concerned about living in the middle. Yeah. But what I found is actually the middle isn't bad because that's what the manifestation of my work is now where I can lean into the creative with content and with music and with art and with conference. And then I can lean into the, lean into the work of the training and, and working on the executive side. And where I saw life run away was actually when I was ignoring the movement that I felt God was moving me to. And I stayed in real estate too long and I stayed in business and I stayed yeah. paying attention to what I wanted. For me, that's the only time life has ever really run away. And uh, I'm just glad I got back on track before I was 60. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, I can imagine how much that would hurt. Um, I don't know if you've seen it firsthand, but it, it, it is. Well, of course you have. I mean, I mean, not in a family unit. You know, I mm -hmm. feel like a lot of your family probably pursued what they wanted, but it is some. It is some hurtful stuff, man. And some hurtful stuff definitely develops from it. Um, you ever taken a personality test? I, I have not. I've taken. Um, disc i've taken gallop strengths and i've taken um oh goodness predictive index as mm. as the three that i've taken predictive index i think was the most accurate in fact i actually really like predictive index as a a good representation not just of your personality but how you move and react to different situations and environments mm. um, but i have a couple of times yeah for sure yeah yeah i mean you you you, you, you strike me as a, a similar personality to mine, like INFJ, you know, because, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about empathy, but you really empathize, you know, you really, I can tell by the way you ask questions, it's like you're really interfacing with people, whereas a lot of people, they have a little more trouble with that. I mean, you like, uh, I don't know, it's the fact that your mother was an English major, I mean, not an English professor, excuse me, but you can, you're very good at, you know, create you know creative things music i would imagine reading and writing mm -hmm. you know you are coming out with the book um so that's interesting man um 
taking it further back to the beginning or rather back to the beginning though um so you said in an interview that you come from a lot of entrepreneurs mm-hmm. in that while particularly you were middle class even though you know your father was an entrepreneur you're middle middle and upper class uh in between middle and upper class and middle class that your great uncle was actually wealthy you know um and i was just wondering what are some of the things that you've seen growing up from him that gave you that indication that this is you know this guy's you know wealthy mm-hmm. well in in gosh i wish this was a sexier answer but i i i actually i just knew i knew his net worth honestly because but but but, but it's it it, it it's a little less black and white than that. Um, yeah. Actually, I'm glad that you touched on that because so often we hear two distinct narratives. The, I come from nothing, I'm in the struggle, I I'm come from yeah. this rough life, and I need to make something of myself. And that is an important narrative. And then also the narrative of, I come from something and I don't really have to work and I can kind of do whatever I want and daddy's money and you know I can do whatever. Yeah. But the problem is, is both of those are actually significant outliers. Mm-hmm. See, I think that most people, regardless of demographic and background, I think most people come from just enough to know that there's more, but not enough to take advantage of it. And then they have to go and fill in the gap. I think most people come from environments where regardless of if both parents are home, regardless of if you have siblings, where you have enough, maybe you're not unbelievably cared for, but you have enough love to think for yourself and you have just enough opportunity to know that there's more. I think that's the bulk of society. And that's why I lean into that narrative is because when I, when I first stayed, a podcast host said, oh, well, you know, so you, you haven't really struggled. I didn't say that. It's just my struggle was self-inflicted, not environmentally. Inflicted. Yeah, you know. You know, exactly. And I think for me, looking at my great uncle and how he moved, the funny thing is I knew, I just, I knew what he was worth and what he did. And one day when I got old enough, I kind of did the math and thought, oh, wow, this is a, actually he's, he's doing pretty well. But from the outside looking in, this is a man that didn't buy excessively. Mm-hmm. He's still in, in the 90s. He passed away in the early 2000s in his yeah. late 90s. So he, he ended up living a very full life. But in the 90s, he still had a, a Volkswagen that was, or no, no, it was a Volvo. And gosh, it was probably from the 60s. I mean, he had the car for like 30 years. He was, he was old school money, right? He was very frugal. And yeah, he had a, 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 a lake home and he had a regular home and both houses were nice and whatnot. But even then they weren't like 20,000 square feet. He just, he had enough and he used his money in a way to advance, you know, his interest with the church and allow them to do good and go on missions and, and help the community and provide opportunities at the time he launched at the university of tech uh, of texas a lot of the women's athletic programs in chemistry biomedical and uh and athletic programs in general so a lot of those sponsorships were in a time where unfortunately women didn't have an equal opportunity and he started creating that playing field and doing so much good with his finances what i had learned at that time which i think is so important is that money is a tool for opportunity not that it's to fill your life with the material because I, I tell you what, I got some friends that have some nice stuff and buddy, that Rolls Royce needs an oil change just like everything else. Now I'm not <laughs> saying that it's not worth it, but yeah. what I am saying is when that becomes the goal, a lack of fulfillment always follows. And I saw a man that was fulfilled, not because he had money, but because of the lives he was able to impact because of his labor. 
The money was just the distribution channel. Mother Teresa is a good example of someone who drives fulfillment and significant impact without having a lot of money. She was not a billionaire. Yeah. And so I saw the connection of not even just the money, but just using whatever your platform was as an opportunity to do more mm. and to impact greatly. And it inspired me when I was young to do more and to impact greatly. And I, I carry that today. That's a beautiful answer, man. In regards to what you said earlier, I mean, I think a lot of people um, about your um, issues in life, your struggles being self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. I think the gap between where you are and where, or where you began and where most people began is extremely overestimated. Um, mm-hmm. And that the majority of what people experience is self-inflicted. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's the perspective of your circumstances that really weigh the most, you know, a lot of the times, you know, I didn't grow up in the best place, but you know, it was, it wasn't really much different than, you know, the experience of somebody that came from somewhere else. I mean, a lot of people, regardless of whether you're ultra rich or not, when you're younger, your mind does play those tricks on you. Are you definitely not know until you're, you know, yeah. a little bit older. Yeah. But, um, but you've always, you know, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's a person, it's a weird thing. I don't know whether it's nature or nurture, you know, because you described, you know, you play cards with your great uncle and he would, he would teach you about, you know, problem resolution and how that resulted in cash. And so from there, you probably gathered a little bit of, you know, the, the, um, the seeds of empathy, empathy for other people because you realize, okay, problems, you're, you know, you have to, you know, give value. But uh, so that develops right into into going into elementary school. You've had businesses in elementary school. You would, you know, broker peace on the play, playgrounds. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, it might be called the mafia or something a little bit more aggressive. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I would I would take fruit snacks and I would pay bullies not to bully people. And I was kind of like the broker, the middleman. So this bully would be, you know bullying kids on the playground be like hey you shouldn't do that and i'll give you these scooby snacks and then the kids Uh and it was completely innocent right nowadays it's like wow that sounds a lot like extortion it it really wasn't it it was just it it was innocent but i think the the nature versus nurture conversation i mean that is the conversation right it's it's Mm -hmm. what's the anatomy and and what i think is nature because i've thought on that Mm -hmm. nature for me is a baseline understanding of empathy i've always leaned towards the more empathetic than the, than the less just in how I'm wired. Not that it's a good or a bad or that I'm any better or worse. It just is. Um, but the one thing that has always been instilled in me always is this unrelenting desire to always do more. And it's funny because you look even, and I know this is nature because you look at the anatomy of like myself and my twin brother, my brother is amazingly gifted. I have an amazingly gifted sister as well, but specifically yeah. to this situation, he's very gifted but he's, he's, he's medical. He's in the medical space. He thinks in an A yeah. plus B plus C plus D mindset. I just say, throw it all out there and let's figure <laughs> it out. But he thinks very linear. And it's funny because even in the womb, yeah. myself, my twin brother, he would sit very comfortably, just kind of do his thing. And sure. I would just keep flipping and flipping and flipping and flipping and flipping. <laughs> and I remember, uh, uh, my mom, she was in an appointment and the doctor pointed to me and said, Hey, this is going to be, this is going to be a little bit, a little bit of trouble. And so yeah. that constant movement, I believe is, is hardwired. It's just, we have some of these unique strengths and weaknesses. And then the, the nurture part is, are you placed in an environment where from an early age, 
people allow you to identify and lean into your strengths or are you mm -hmm. placed in an environment where you have to go into a survival mode and then find that later later in life is where you have the people that have to break off limiting beliefs and break off the the chains of their past and and you know you see it in relationships well I, I don't know if i can enter into a relationship with you because i still have baggage with my mother i have to work out and you know things like yeah. that that you hear natural normal parts of progression but i think that's where the nurture starts is how specifically your strengths or weaknesses are being nurtured and if you have to fight to survive or if you're allowed a little bit of room to be curious and, and think yeah I mean, yeah, I think that plays a huge role, um, particularly, you know, from what you describe. I feel like, you know, I mean, even in some of your lowest moments, you would you would call in your father. So I would imagine like you've had a really good relationship with, you know, him and the rest of your family, which probably contributed a lot to being so solid in that feeling. But as solid as you might be and as solid as anybody might be, you know, the younger years of our life, you know, as you alluded to a little bit earlier, kind of turbulent. And so particularly from, the, you know, someone that's hardwired to care for others, because you might realize and not understand at a younger age that others aren't really hardwired to, like they don't really have the foundation coming from some of the places they come from. It might be different for you. I don't really, I mean, but coming from some of the places some people come from, they, they, they might not, they, not, they might not be in a position to return that emotion. And so in your younger years, you know, I know you've went through so many things, selling ice cream, but going through elementary school to middle school to high school, is there any like sort of turbulence in your life based on the fact that you're empathizing with people and that might not be returned? Yeah. And this is going to, to sound off, but my mindset is actually guilty until proven innocent. And I'm going to assume <laughs> that you as an individual don't actually care about me. I'm going to assume that, you know, people always talk about, hey, you got you to network. Networking is building relationships with emotive. The reason why I'm present is because with complete yeah. honesty and transparency and being as kind as possible, I don't really care if you can do anything for me. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that might sound a little bit abrasive, but, but I actually don't. Yeah. Because I want to be present here. And if something becomes of it, then fantastic. And if not, mm -hmm. you know what? That's cool. Yeah. The problem is what, how I learned the hard way is most people don't think that way. In fact, most people are thinking of themselves before other people, which is, uh, I get it. It's understandable. You can't feed other people if you're hungry. But at the end of the day, I noticed that this guilty until proven innocent I need to walk into a relationship with an understanding and an expectation that chances are more likely you're not interested, that you are looking for something for yourself, and that there's an ulterior motive. And that may sound a little bit jaded, but um, and maybe it isn't in a small way. Maybe that's some, uh, an area of weakness I need to work on. But what I've found is more often than not, especially in the professional space, you have people that are trying to use instead of build a relationship. And even my, my first business that I started gaining a little bit of traction, we start breaking, you know, seven figures and get millions yeah. of dollars on the books. I'm like, all right, we're in this thing. And then you know? and, and the people that I'm with, they, they tear me down and they take crazy. me out of the spot and it ends in lawsuits and all sorts of craziness. And at the time I was uh, 19, 20 to go from starting to build that to oh wait, things have really shifted. I started to recognize character traits of people that were moving in that environment. Mm -hmm. And, 
you hear the phrase all the time, right? Good people are hard to find. But a friend of mine, Costa, had said when he was on my podcast, actually a, a couple of, I guess a year or so ago, he said, a friend is not someone who's with you when you're down. A friend is someone who's with you when you're up. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting because, man, you can be, I can be down with you in the dirt all day long. We can sit down and we can drink and we can smoke. We can talk about how bad our life is and we can kind of kill the day. But the question is, when you actually break off of who you were and now you're thinking bigger and you say, you know what, I'm not going to cheat on my girl because I think a real man is someone who's present with yeah. his woman. I think a real man is someone who's present with his children. I think a real man is someone who provides. I think, I th- and I'm saying real man a little yeah. bit tongue in cheek. I'm talking about people in general. Like mm-hmm. I believe that, and, and you start breaking away from that crowd. Hey, you know what? I'm not going to be down here and talk about how bad my life is. I'm going to take responsibility for it and shift. I don't like mm-hmm. that I'm overweight. I'm going to get my ass in the gym. Yeah. Right. I don't like, I mean, and, and you, the person that I think is really there with you in the long run is a person that's going to take your hand and say, I'm going to walk with you through that. Mm-hmm. A great example of that is one of my best friends in the world, best friends in the world. I love him to death. Um, he and I have, have different lifestyles in the sense of that on paper, when I talk about the, the impact and the high income goals and what we're trying to build, it's, yeah. it's big, big numbers, things like that. And his is big, but in a different way. He wants to provide for his family in a big way and he wants to be present and he wants to, to start a company, but the, the way he wants to impact is different. And on paper, you look at two different numbers, two different types of impact. You might think, well, these don't go together. But when we sit down and talk, he dreams for me and walks with me in the same capacity that I do for him and walk with him. And they're two different ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And I think that when you can build relationships in that way, that was built through guilty until proven innocent. We're going to start walking together before we actually clasp hands. But when we do, my intention is not, not to let go. And I think that that mindset is something that, you know, that's, it's hard. You have to learn the hard way, but for me, at least that's what I've gone through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I get what you mean. I feel a lot of the same ways and, you know, maybe, maybe it is a, a slightly, not not the most optimal way to feel, but I, it is also, you know, a lot of the ways we stereotype is based in truth. And in, into in what you said earlier, man, um, about the audience, man, you can be as spiritual as you want. You know, this 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 uh, episode, though it will be aired, is really about a curiosity for you know the way you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but going along those same lines, you know, before I transition to some more concrete questions. Mm-hmm. Um, does it ever hurt you, you know, um, to, because you care deeply and a lot of that, like you said, is hardwired about people living up to and utilizing their gifts in, in, in a maximum capacity. So does it ever hurt you or particularly when you were younger, cause I'm, you know, about four years younger than you, um, is there like a storm going on in your life, looking around you and seeing people, uh, not living in that purpose you know do you does it hurt you to see people not utilizing their gifts and, and living the potential they could you know that they can live yeah it 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 does actually and i'll i think the phrasing of that does it hurt you is interesting because the answer actually is is yes i, I am hurt by it and i don't think that's a weak statement i think it comes from a place of strength to know where your vulnerabilities are mm-hmm. um 
one of the hardest lessons I've ever had to learn is you can't want something for someone more than they want it for themselves. And in a very tangible example, the example is the addict that just can't get off of it. You can want all day, man, you're destroying your life. What are you doing? You're going down this road. But if they don't want something different, you can't want it for them. And so for me, what, what, for me, the, the, the thought process on that is, I guess using your word hurt, what hurts more is not that somebody isn't living into their potential, but it's when their lack of movement, lack of motivation, selfishness starts to infect other people and watching the infection. Yeah. Like you guys think COVID is bad. Mediocrity is much more contagious and yeah. watching the infection, like a, like a, a black strain, a black plague, just kind of go through all these amazing people. Um, for me, I, 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 I get hurt when I see that and I see other people get dragged and they just don't know it. And you know, like a, like a father, sometimes your child has to, to touch the hot stove before you, they, they know it's really hot. And, and sometimes yeah. people have to go through that. And so one thing that I've learned is uh, to practice, I have a principle, which is to love the person in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe in forgiveness. Yes, some of that might be grounded in my Christian faith, but some of that's just grounded because I, I, I don't have the energy to be mad at people all the time. Yeah. Um, and so I, I can forgive and I can be compassionate and I can move in a mm-hmm. loving way, but you can completely love without completely affirming or understanding. And so for me, the way that I work through that mindset is I just, I just move in as much love as possible. And I say, you know what, I don't completely understand and I don't agree and I don't accept, but that doesn't mean that I, I can't move in a loving way and I can still mm-hmm. love this person and I can still be as present as possible without moving myself into an infectious environment. Um, that to me was something that was very hard for me to practice because I used to be like, let's just be real. I used to be like, all right, man, you know, hey, F you, I'm out of here. Like, you know, you're going to, you know, screw every, you're going to die and everything's going to go down with it. And I mean, I used, I used to be really angry, like, man, you're, you know, what the hell are you doing? And, and but now I just found, okay, everybody, oh, man, I was just talking to a friend about this. People are always trying to be winners, but man, there's no such thing as winners or losers. Yes, there is, you know, people win games, people lose games, something like that. I hate football. Everybody gets a trophy. Like, no, you either won or you didn't. But what I'm talking about is everyone is a person that is trying to be better or accomplish more or do more for the most part. And those people win and lose. It is impossible to be always up and it's impossible to be always down unless you work on frankly missing every opportunity. And so having the grace and the space and the forgiveness and the compassion to let people win and lose in the moment and have it not be reflective of who they are at their core is, is key. It doesn't mean you have to always be open to getting hurt, but you can have a boundary, a healthy boundary, and at the same time ensure that you're not just creating an army of enemies because they don't believe what you believe. And that was hard and oh, it's something I worked through constantly, but I think it's important. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a super hard thing. Uh, as always, particularly in the younger years, you know, you try to help a lot of people. You have the best intentions and often you'll get retaliation for that. And so you've gone through periods of anger. You've gone through periods of anxiety. You've gone through periods of lostness. And so in this expanse of years where you're not, you know, necessarily brushed up on the best techniques to convert people to a healthier and a better lifestyle, where they do live in their giftedness, 
what are some of the unhealthy obsessions that you've developed during those expanses of time? I think the interesting thing about an unhealthy obsession is many times it can look healthy. You know, many people will think of an addiction or a, uh, a negative use of time or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, man, if you're strung out, it's pretty easy to tell what an unhealthy obsession looks like in your life. But oftentimes it's, it's kind of this incognito pulling. For me, the, the unhealthy obsession that I really had to break was allowing my identity to be grounded in my faith and myself and not someone's perceptions of my actions. An unhealthy obsession, if you're listening to this, is when that phone rings, do you get anxiety? Do you always feel like you have to introduce yourself by your title? And if you don't, you feel like you're worth less, not worthless, but worth less. Do you feel that you always need to be boastful in what you've done? Because if people don't know what you've done, then they won't think that you're an actual important individual. For me, the unhealthy yeah. obsession was breaking. The, I used to walk in the room like, man, I, you know, uh, yeah, $35 million, you know, blah, 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 business. And I'm the number one. In the, <laughs> and, and for the longest time, I did that because... I, I, it was under the vice of, well, I've worked hard and, you know, I'm proud of what I worked for. But in reality, the funny thing was I actually didn't care. As yeah. funny as it sounds, even in those times when I was moving into the top 1% of professionals in my area and, and in the state and I had all these accolades and things, I actually didn't care because in my mind it was like, man, I just, I, I just did my job. I just didn't suck at it. Like, that's it. And so... I started to recognize that I was, I was just pretending, even in that space, I was pretending walking into the room because as a young man, I felt that if people didn't know that actually, oh, I've done great things and they wouldn't recognize me and my worth as an individual. Mm -hmm. Because in reality, what happens is people just want to be seen first, then they want to yeah. be heard, and then they want to be known. And I was so fearful that people wouldn't see me that what I was projecting and presenting forced them to look, but it forced them to look at the wrong identity. Mm -hmm. And so I started to break that unhealthy obsession. I even do that now where I'm, I'm very careful with how I talk and I'll bring it into the conversation where it's important. But for the most part, I actually am, am very careful about not introducing myself as the person that I was because real estate Evan, business mogul Evan, that's a very different Evan than who's sitting here on the zoom in front of you today. Mm -hmm. And so that unhealthy obsession, that identity piece is key. And, and if you've got someone that's listening to this and they're thinking in their life, the thing where it begins is what do you have to, what guilt, what emotions do you have to push down in order to project whatever you're doing? Mm -hmm. So if you know, deep down, I'm going to compromise. This might sound a little icky in my mind, but I'm going to say it anyway, that, that small compromise, you don't really feel it. You don't really feel it. That small compromise, that usually highlights it a larger unhealthy obsession. If it's not prominent, that's, that's where I would begin for those that are wondering where yeah. there's more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing. Uh, Even beyond working hard for it, you know, you, in the arena that you're in, it's a competitive arena. You're kind of forced to split that personality. You have a little bit of edge. So, you know, it's in, in the self-belief you have to develop to be the number one in your profession is, you know, it has to be borderline delusional. And so, you know, it, it's a difficulty not to slip into those areas 
Mm-hmm. But you went to college and you dropped out of college. What, what, was, what, what was that like? I mean, what, what year did you drop out of college? And that, that was hard. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I was, I started college in 2012, fall yeah. semester of 2012. I was out in 2013, I think. Um, yeah. I started my real estate career at the time just as an agent building up that company about 2013. And then, mm-hmm. so there was a little bit of transition, but man, that was tough. You know, my mother was summa cum laude, English major. My father is very well educated. Uh, tradi- mm-hmm. Both of them traditionally educated. My brother is in the biomedical engineering space, so he's pretty highly educated. Yeah. Um, my, you know, my sister is in school and she's going for high level education. I mean, I'm <laughs> surrounded by people who are educated, right? Yeah. And so, but I knew it just wasn't for me. And I, I remember the first week of school was a four-day week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And I went, I went back home. I was about an hour away from my parents. So I went back home that weekend, the first weekend, you know, grabbed dinner house the first week and just, just you know, we got a close family, so I was there. And I remember walking in the door after four days, how was it? I'm like, I really don't think this is for me. I just, I just don't think it's for me. And it took me another year or so to, to lean into that. But I remember I had kind of, you know, you know, sometimes when you don't want to come out and say something, you kind of drop little nuggets. Like yeah. maybe if I, if I prime you, maybe <laughs> if I prime you, right. You just kind of drop nuggets. Well, I was dropping nuggets. Oh, I don't think it's for me. Like talking a couple of weeks prior and then class registration opens up. And I remember that morning, my alarm went off and I look up and I thought, you know what? No, I'm not going to do this again. And wow. I back over and went to sleep and I get out and I'm talking with my mom on, on my phone and I'm walking across campus and I remember, you know, she, she kind of knew, right? Mom's yeah. know. She's like, hey, hey, what classes did you sign up for? Like, tell me about that. I'm like, oh, I didn't sign up. She's like, oh, you didn't sign up this morning? I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm not going to. I'm, I'm going to. I'm, I'm done. And um, I remember there's this moment where she's like, oh, okay, do you want to talk about it? I'm like, no, I, I don't. Wow. That was hard because that was the first time that I – I really leaned into what I wanted, not what my parents mm-hmm. wanted. And they wanted the best for me. But at the time it was, I know, I know this isn't for me. Yeah. Not that school is trash, but this is not for me. And I need to take a stand in that. And it was hard because that was when I really started to break away from this mentality of, okay, I can start making my own decisions as an adult. Yeah. Um, because I was like, look, I can always go back to school. I saw people in my sure. class that were freaking 50. Like, let me, I can always go back to it, but I I started looking around and doing the data. Mm. At the time, I I wasn't in a relationship. Now I'm I'm happily married with someone I met right after that, actually, but I I wasn't even in a relationship. I I still don't have kids. I didn't have any pets. Like, I had super low expenses. Like, what better time than in my 20s to really dive into work? And uh, I'm, I'm so glad I did it, but that was... That was a tricky conversation there for a little while. It was, it was yeah. a little tricky. And that actually leaned into my unhealthy obsession where, to me, the way to overcome and overcompensate that feeling of guilt was to present what I was doing. Like, oh, I have this much in sales and all this, and everyone gives me the thumbs yeah. up. Hey, good job. But they didn't see the lack of fulfillment and being worn down on the backside. And so that, mm-hmm. that actually, they kind of play into each other, your last question. And mm-hmm. that one, ironically enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I could imagine, well, 
I went through something similar. So, <laughs> but I could imagine, like, particularly with you, it's like, you know, I guess you I mean, you know, 2013 came around, which would be your sophomore year, I guess. Yeah, um, I was in two, three semesters. So I did 2012, 2012, fall semester of sophomore year, and then I just, yeah. I was out. So you were already having a little bit of success by that point in time, but, uh, you know, with a twin brother, you know, particularly in a family that values education, you know, you, you might have to overcompensate sometimes, you know, especially yeah, if yeah. this dude's going all the way, he's showing off, like, uh, I similarly, you know, well, I got a zero GPA my freshman year and, uh, mm -hmm. you know how that goes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but, um, do we have to cut off at one? What's that? Is, 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 are we cutting off at one or no, yeah, we can, a little more? Okay. No, that's, um, for sure. Let's keep rolling. Yeah. I mean, I got this, my laptop doesn't actually have a battery that functions. And so this battery is going to run out eventually anyway, but <laughs> so a little remote battery. I need to get a new laptop, but, um, mm -hmm. so leading up to that, you know, that season of 2013, where the real estate be business begins to bud, what are the businesses that you are thinking on and participating, participating in, you know, because we've covered, uh, well, I've briefly mentioned all of elementary school, but what about, you know, moving into high school, into the college season, what are some of the things you plan with? Well, the, the first one was, you know, very young brokering piece, right? That was fruit snacks. Don't believe this kid. I'll give you some fruit snacks. Um, then it went into like little gizmos and stuff. I would buy some stuff in bulk and then resell it and made a couple of bucks, you know, just stupid stuff like, powdered Kool-Aid and, you know, rock candy and just, just ridiculous stuff. Just, I started recognizing the correlation of like, well, wait a minute, I could make money by moving objects around. And, um, then in elementary school, same thing, I play around with ice cream, reselling ice cream when the cart would go away for another couple of cents higher. And, um, all these things, they, they just were practicing that entrepreneurial spirit. Nothing ever made a lot of money. Um, Middle school, I did two things that were really interesting. I started uh, landscaping and just, mm -hmm. you know, mowing lawns and whatnot. And I had a riding mower. And so I got a bunch of neighbors together and I would all mow and I would ride across like four front lawns and go all the way back and then all the way back. Yeah. And so uh, that, that actually was not bad, you know, because I would do that in the summers and the, the, the noise ordinance cut off at seven. So yeah. I would have my watch and be sitting on the mower and when it would flip to seven, I would turn it on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, a couple hours later by halfway through, I was done for the day and I pulled in, you know, a couple hundred bucks. So you do that wow. once or twice a week in the summer on these houses, like you're, you're good. But yeah. the, the one that really, where I really started playing with that kind of spirit was I had a technology resale company. And yeah. in short, what we did is you used to be able to buy these crates of electronics. We would factory refurbish them, certify refurbish them as a third mm -hmm. party. We couldn't be certified per se but um, it was the same quality. And what we would do is we would buy them. You could buy a crate of 10 iPod nanos or whatever for like $200, refurbish yeah. them, spend another couple hundred bucks on refurb. So for roughly a thousand dollars or less, you could have 10, you know, iPods or iPhones, or you could have a couple of laptops or whatever the electronic is. Yeah. And then you would resell them and you'd make a lot of profit. Mm -hmm. And so when I was in middle school, very beginning of high school, I had this company where we started buying refurb sell buy refurb sell we would start to do boxes and boxes and boxes of these and i had a, a couple of people on my payroll really they were commissioned employee had a a science professor that was working and earning more she said at a time she was earning more working for me than she was for the school i had I, I had all these different 
opportunities. And, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I knew how to balance a book. I knew how to work with people. I knew how to work with taxes. I knew how I, I started learning all these lessons through that business wow. because, you know, we had to manage six people and I had independent agreements where if you made a sale, then I would get this much for supplying, you know, that you would be moving the products and, uh, you know, the electronics and you would keep a certain percentage. And so it didn't really cost me any overhead because it wasn't paying a salary, it, you know, commission only nowadays is what it would be called. But that was the one that really popped off because when I was in eighth grade and ninth grade, I was pulling in like between one and $3,000 a week. And Whoa. So, yeah, so I was like, okay, my dad actually asked me if I was dealing drugs because this is before he could take credit cards on the phone. So I'd have these checks, I'd have these stacks of, you know, cash because, you know, kids, they're paying in twenties and stuff like yeah. that, you know? So I'd, I'd come in with these like gangster rolls. And I, I remember I slapped that on the counter once my dad so what, what we had, we had a talk. Yeah. I was like, no, it's business. Let me show you. And I, I pulled up my spreadsheet and everything. Um, and then uh, when I left school, I had this season where I, I wasn't really sure. And then I started building the, what became that, that big real estate company. So I, I dabbled in all these different things, um, had a very small, what now it would be considered a venture capital fund, but I called it a startup fund for, for individuals to get in connected with people that could, help young kids kind of bring some ideas to life. And so, man, I, I've just played around in all of it. That's Lost crazy. a business in 2008, the business. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I dabbled around in a lot of stuff, man. Nothing hit quite like, quite like my real estate company though. That was, mm -hmm. that was big. And, and now all those experiences have led to where we are today with, with OA. And, uh, but man, it was, it was a fun time thinking back on it. I'm like, man, that was a really fun time. <laughs> That's crazy, man. You say, which is, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of being like, you know, confused by this entire thing. You're talking about spreadsheets. I'm like, I assumed from the beginning that you weren't necessarily an organizational math mind, but you have that too. You know, it's an impressive thing, you know, and you describe it like nothing quite hit, you know. Um, but me, I've where how I've grown up, I... You know, I hear these stories from people like you, people like Gary Vee, growing up entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. I didn't grow up entrepreneurial. Like you made more in a in a eighth, ninth grade business than I've ever made in my life. Like that's that's levels right there. Um, but what 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 experiences? Because you've had a lot of you know friends, uh, you know, stick with you from some of them earlier years. Well, I, I know of one friend actually. But uh, what experiences did you have? at that age as a result of being able to afford like what is what is what is an eighth ninth grader tenth grade eleventh grader spend their money on like what do you what did you do all of the candy in the candy aisle really like all, all of it like like it exactly what you think a kid would go and spend money on that's exactly what i spent money on i i would buy i would buy candy and so i have a terrible sweet tooth man i got to be careful around the house i don't keep a lot of sugar in the house because I know. <laughs> like i will straight up go for coca-colas and sour i'm like a kid i want sour patch kids i want reese's like I'm, it's yeah. terrible um but but yeah that's what i spent my money on was just everything i spent money like freaking water i would take my friends out to dinner and i would do nice dinners too i'm not talking like cc's yeah. pizza like i would i would roll with nice you know we'd go to food courts <laughs> we'd have a steak dinner and i'd be like oh every, you know rounds on me and of course we can't even order food and uh one time the manager even made me prepay because he thought i was we we're like screwing the restaurant or something but I mean, I just, I would just spend money on whatever. And I'm actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I spent all my money. Yeah. I, I invested a little <laughs> bit of it, but, but I spent 
all of it because I was just like, oh, we're good, we're good, we're good. And then what happens is 2008 hits. So eight, uh, eight, 9, 10, 11, 12 was my high school years. For those yeah. of you that are watching you, and you didn't know, I'm, I'm, I'm a youngin', right? I'm 27 in September. So, yeah. uh, uh, and then I started college. So 2008 and 2009 was my eight and ninth grade. Mm-hmm. What happens is, is I was in a school district where you had a, a lot of people that were able to spend their parents' money. And so my parents yeah. were like, like, you know, they were middle class and, and, and maybe considered upper middle. Um, but we were in a district where you would have, like, there were some, some families that were doing pretty well. Like, yeah. really well. There were some rich families in that district. So mm-hmm. the kids would spend the parents' money. So it was super easy because if the kid wanted something, uh, a lot of kids could kind of part, get their parents to part with 150 bucks. I'd broke the deal and then I'd grab myself 150 bucks or my company and then whatever. But what happened was, is, you know, the recession hits and everybody stops. Like everybody stops. And all of a sudden we didn't make any money anymore. Like we just, kids stopped buying because what happened was, is the parents stopped excessively allowing their kids to spend money. Everyone got real tight. So the funny thing was, is I actually went through an experience of losing <laughs> a company before I ever really lost my first company. I went through that experience of knowing what it was like to spend excessively and, and have it dry up. Yeah. And even now, I'm, I'm, I always am worried in the back of my mind, like I think, you know, the next shoe is about to drop. And it's a total yeah. limiting belief, but I, I have this worry in the back of my mind of, like I remember that, you know, I didn't have anything to lose. My parents were still home. They, they took care of things. They weathered the storm. I mean, it was just yeah. like, oh, I don't have the cash anymore. But I remember it distinctly thinking like, wow, um, I can't do the things I could do before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it was a really interesting time. It was, this was crazy. <laughs> was it difficult? Uh, n- not in the way that we're thinking right yeah. now with, with a more mature mindset. Um, yeah. I understood the importance of, I felt it of having something and then having nothing. Um, even at the time I was like, probably should have spent that a little better. Yeah. Right. You don't know what you got until it's gone. Well, thinking back on it now, I'm like, man, I was pulling in some series bread and I didn't do anything yeah. with it. Like my, my oh. eyes didn't buy investments. I didn't do anything with it. <laughs> um, but uh, no, no, I didn't, I didn't really get hurt by it until my, that, that first real estate venture, the real estate company that failed before the one that succeeded. That was the one that hurt. That hurt big, 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 big time. The one that, you know, I had a life that I had to support. The one in, in eighth grade. No, I yeah, just couldn't go to Walmart and buy all the candy anymore. Yeah, well, that's, you, we, we're moving into real estate now, but I, I would imagine, man, that that sucks, man. Not having freedom in the younger years, that's it's tough sometimes in a real way when you're there. Um, But, uh, you know, obviously we got to move on to real estate now. Um, so about real estate, first and foremost, although, you know, the windows, uh, I don't know whether they're behind you or in front of you, right? Those, are those like floor to ceiling windows? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're over here, to the, over here to the right. Yeah. What are, what are some of the things that you like um, in like a house or a place to live? Like, uh, you know, uh, rainfall, showers, marble countertops. What are some of the things that you like? Because you, you did ultra luxury, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I, I worked in, in luxury and, and high value prod, uh, excuse me, high value homes and new development. So I, I played around in a lot of nice, a lot of nice houses. Right. Yeah. So I think, pretty- you know, I have, it's funny you mentioned rainfall shower. I actually have a rainfall shower and it's not 
as sometimes I just want to like shower and get out. Like I'm one of those people where I have a really hard time just kind of sitting there and listening to music and candles and, you know, I don't have any hair to do anyway. So it's like, I just can't have like that super sexy, like cool, long slow motion shot of working in the shower. But, um, but what I like more than anything is I have this belief that you deserve to be inspired and fascinated and motivated by your home. Um, I, it expands to where you live, where you work, how you live and work and who you live and work with, but it starts at home. I think that a home is a really pure reflection of your labor. And even if it's not right now, at some point, you, by getting your morning cup of coffee, coming back after a vacation, you deserve to feel really fulfilled by walking through your door. Mm -hmm. And so for me, what I look for is I look for things that are, I don't want to take a vacation from things that are inspiring fascinating and motivating. The reason why my wife and I live downtown and why we live in a nice, nice home in the city is because I love the energy of the city waking up and to be able to sit out and watch all these different people in all these different lives in one area creates, I I just, something about it really ignites me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that a lot of people, they think of their home as just, just a space that they, live, die, eat, sleep in. And in reality, it's so much more because I mean, think about even right now, this is a great time to talk about this during COVID. It's hard. It's hard for me to be stuck at home and I love my home. Yeah. I think it's even harder when you don't like your home environment. And I'm not talking about relationships that maybe aren't good. I'm talking like about the house itself, like the, the tangible, the products. And I think that if you can be in an environment that is a reflection of your labor and you can feel just fulfilled and at peace and calm that ignites a lot of the rest of your life. You know, if you come home and you're like, gosh, I hate this man. I remember coming home to a studio apartment. I was living in an apartment that was smaller than some of the closets I was selling. Yeah. And, and I, it was a fun time, but I tell you what, walking across a courtyard at 110 degree heat in the summertime, just to do my laundry at the tiny little two washing machine to see that it was full, then to bring all the laundry back and to go back and forth and back and forth to be able like that. I didn't enjoy that. That wasn't, that didn't motivate me uh, to do more. So I I think your home is incredibly important. I really do. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so, I mean, what what is the story um, of this real estate business? Well, I got into real estate because I was too egotistical to take the job opportunity at Target. Um, I took that job. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I left it now. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's, I suppose. Yeah. I, 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 I love Target, but at the time I, I had to fight with an ego. I was a pretty, I was kind of an arrogant asshole when I was younger, which is one reason why I work so hard to not be now. Um, the three areas of work in my life is ego, patience, and finances. So if God needs to speak to me, he's going to move in one of those three. And he broke the yeah. ego, thank God. Um, patience, almost there, then finances. We've, we've gone through that a couple of times. So mm-hmm. the reason why I got into real estate was because I was always interested in real estate and I needed something to do and yeah. I didn't want to take the job at Target. I didn't want to be known as the Target guy because for mm-hmm. some reason at the time, I thought that was below me. Boy, right. I've, I've grown a lot. Um, but that's the real reason why. And I got into real estate and I had interviewed for an assistant position and the person I'd spoken to was like, well, you've done this in business, you've, you speak well, you know, you should become an agent. And I thought, no, I, I dropped out of school. Like I'm not, you know, and he yeah. said, no, 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 you just have to get your license. I thought, okay. So a couple months later, little old 18, 19, Evan, I think it was 19. Yeah, I was 19. Cause I got my license the wow. day I turned 19. 
I uh, no beard, walk into the office, full-blown three-piece suit, pocket square, the whole thing, looking like yeah. a new. I walk into the <laughs> office, and um, and they sit me down with these stack of binders on the desk. They said, this is every person that's called into our office in the last five years. You need to call and see if they're still interested in buying or selling. Right. And that's how, the, how it all began was me not knowing how to talk. I bought a Bluetooth headset with the little bit of money I had because I thought it would make me cool and I lost it the first week. I think I left it in the house or something. And, and it was a rough start, man. It was. But I found out what I liked, what I didn't like, areas I liked, I didn't like. I learned how to talk to people, how to communicate, how to make it work because I needed yeah. to earn. Um, I, I made some partnerships with people that weren't great and met some amazing people and got more and more and more and more and more honed into what later became my niche before I, I exited the industry. Um, but it, it began in a, in a wild way. Like I want to say I had this explosive start my first year. I think I made $15,000 or something. I mean, it, it was not good. I remember looking at my first paycheck thinking something's got to change. Right. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it was, it was a rocky start, man. It, it was, yeah. it was not explosive by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> Are you in a relationship at this point in time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, happily married. Well, our third year is in a third year married, and uh, oh gosh, I think eight, seven years together, eight years together, something like that. We, we were friends before we started dating, so we've been together for a while. But October's our third year, and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, very, very happily married. Met an amazing woman who's, um, you know, we're we're able to we live together, we work together, mm -hmm. we play together, we're great friends. So it's a, a very very blessed to have a good relationship. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at that uh, at nineteen, but doing the math, you probably were just entering a relationship, or not yet. Yes. Mm -hmm. So in just entering. So I, my wife and I met. I guess, we, I mean, we we were friends, but we started like dating and getting to know each other a little better in that in that area. Yeah. The spring ish before, I got into real estate. So this was right before that whole thing kicked off. Yeah. Yeah. And so the first year is a little bit rocky. How many, for how many more years does it continue that way? Of, of real estate continuing in a rocky way? Yeah. Well, the rocks never changed, never left. They just got, they, they manifested differently. Um, so it took me about two and a half years to find my footing. Right. And, the first three years I got started, that was when I had that bad partnership. We really got rolling and then I left. And so mm -hmm. it, it took, I, I think I earned 15,000 and then 30,000 and then 60,000 the first couple of years. I didn't break a hundred yeah. grand the first couple of years. And then I, I really started diving into personal development. The first person I found was of course Zig Ziglar. Then I went to Eric Thomas and the Les Brown and some of the yeah. OGs. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was, it was rocky, but the rocks shifted. It went from not being able to get business to not finding deals to how do I, okay, now I've got a little nugget. How do I grow that? How do I expand it? And then how do I get mm -hmm. more focused on this area and higher price points and higher net worth people and, and working deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in that way? Mm -hmm. um, the rocks just changed. So it never went away, but it, it, my business kind of worked like a hockey stick where I took a couple of years and then my business, my income doubled or at two or three times um, each year, year over year, I would double or triple or, or whatnot mm -hmm. my income year over year until um, for the next couple of years and, and had a lot of success. And so the rocks at the end of my career were, okay, how do I, my thought process before I decided to make an exit was how soon can I break a hundred million in sales in a 12 month period? 
So that was the final rocks I was looking at was what's my, my, my roadmap to a hundred million versus the first one, which is good God, how do I pay my $800 apartment rent? So similar hurdles to overcome, but just very Mm -hmm. different perspectives, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And so in this period, uh, in the beginning where you're like, Oh, how, how do I pay this apartment rent? How is this affecting like a new relationship that's just forming? Well, it was when, when Brittany and I first met, I still had that business mentality, right? Yeah. And so our first date um, was a little more direct than maybe some other people's. I, I said, um, you know, she had shared a little bit about her story and, and her past and was, was transparent and, and uh, gave us a great opportunity to start an amazing conversation. And I shared some about my story and my past and different things we've gone through, things you do on the first date, a little yeah. deeper than most surface level conversation. But I, about halfway through, I said, look, um, I believe that you either break up or get married and I'm not really here to make friends. So I was like, let's just, let's get into it. Let's cut all the crap. So the first date, the first date over a lunch in a cafeteria, we're talking about sex and politics and religion and money and all of the things that you don't touch on. We're talking about that. But the great thing was that laid a foundation to where we knew by the end of date one, where we both stood, things we agreed on, things we didn't. And the rest of our relationship was, building congruence and finding a middle ground and compromises and bridges between those gaps. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, we get four years into it. Oh wait, I really want kids. And you don't, Uh Oh, it yeah. was, we know exactly where we stood. So the relationship went through some ebbs and flows. And, mm-hmm. and some of that was my, my fault because communicating emotionally is something that has taken a long time for me to be able to do well. And it's still, still a point of uh, progress in my yeah. life. Um, and her, Brittany's words of affirmation is her, her love language. So that's important for her. Um, but for us, it was, it, it, I mean, it was, it was good. We had a chance to grow together and move in faith together and really see the ups and the downs of, of business together. And uh, I'm glad I got into a relationship when I did, because man, I, I don't think I'd, I, if I was single now, I don't think I would be looking now, you know? So I, I, I kind of entered it right before that door closed. So it was good. Yeah, for sure. And so, so um, as time goes on, everything's going beautifully. You get what, three other partners in your business? Yeah. So I had three, my first business, I had three partners who were unfortunately not of a high moral capacity yeah. and I did a lot of my own. I had another partner who, in more of a not present way, had underlying moral issues that I didn't recognize. Um, I got into partnerships because I thought I needed a relationship with someone that was doing something to do more. And what I recognized was I needed to rely on, on myself, my strength, and God's movement in my life, not another individual. And so I had unioned myself with another person that didn't move in the same capacity, and there was a lot mm-hmm. of tension there. Um, lost, you know, in 2017, I guess, or whatever it was, there was a year Mm -hmm. where, you know, I lost half a million dollars of my own income because of a person's incompetence. And, um, I, uh, I, I exited that relationship and then built, 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 built on my own until I hit this crest where I was at this crossroads of, I can continue expanding this business, get more people under me, more executives, more admins, more agents, more blah, 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 and push or I can stop because what happened was, is I started setting goals that were big goals, right? How do I go from 25 to 35 and then 35 to 50 and then 50 to a hundred. 
But the interesting thing, this is going to sound crazy, but take the zeros away and just talk about numbers. Three million and five million feels very similar. Mm. And in personal income, I haven't made five million, but when you make half a million dollars, that feels a lot like 200. And a million dollars feels a lot like when you break your first 150 because your life goes up with you. And so what happens is I hit this point where I've got this big book of business and all these accolades and a personal income that's, that's great, especially for someone my age. And I look around and I think, okay, like I thought my life would be great when I made a million dollars. I thought my life right. would be great when I ran an eight-figure book of business. I thought my life would be right. great. And, and I didn't have that. And so I hit this crest where I could either dive deep and really commit for the rest of my life or, or I wouldn't. But if I, right. I don't believe in like, hey, man, we're going to stay friends, but we're going to break up. No, no, no. Like if we're going to break yeah. up, I'm out. And, and I was, and I, and I left it. And I felt I really had an opportunity to take on an $18 million home uh, as a mm-hmm. listing agent. And or we were exploring this conversation. And I, I honestly, you know, I'm a person of faith. I leaned into my faith. I prayed about it. And I felt God tell me to leave. I felt him say, you know what? Drop it. You're done. So I did. I signed the paperwork sold my company and someone else took it over and worked out an agreement and moved on with my life. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, definitely paid off. You know, the time on the other side, living with things that are, you know, close to our heart. Um, I'm going to begin winding down with some of the questions. Uh, close one out because this battery is going to expire on me. Um, mm-hmm. But so with this individual uh, or this, this group of individuals, uh, you know, I feel like one of your personality traits is to be, a, you know, is, is to be very efficient with assessing people's personality. And so, so why is it that, like, what, you know, what are some of the experiences that you had with some of these people, um, you know, working in close proximity? And why is it that you were unable to detect, you know, the tension that existed before, you know, everything blew up? Mm. Uh, I moved too fast and I didn't pay attention. I believe you have to move fast. You know, like I said, I've, I've, in a non-arrogant way, I'm aware of what I've accomplished by 27. I know that I've lived a couple of lifetimes by this point, or at least I, I feel sure. that way. Um, and the reason I say that's non-arrogant is sometimes you got to look back and recognize things you've done and things you've worked on without coming across as an ass. The reason why that's important is because I believe in speed. That used to be my number one core value move, uh, which was to commit first and figure it out later. And now that's shifted to precision, move swiftly and with accuracy, move so quickly that you can accomplish much, but without breaking things in the process. Now, the reason why the verbiage changed is because I lived by speed, 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 commit first, figure it out later, commit, 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 commit. But what happens is, is you have to be aware of what you commit to. I was yoking myself to things that were ripping instead of things that would help us grow. And I, I didn't see it because I'm like, oh, commit first, figure it out later. And, oh, you guys have this. You do, you, you do good work. You can make sales. Okay, perfect. Let's partner together. Right. And, let's, and I started running and running and running and running and running and running. And what happened was I would commit myself where things look good in a moment. My business partner, the last partner, you know, there was a point in the year where she had moved $750,000 worth of volume and I had moved $15 million. And mm-hmm. at, at, at this early point in the year, and I was like, whoa, because what happened was is I caught her in a moment where things look good. Right? It's like sometimes like I'm not calling anybody out, but we all know there can be moments in time where someone looks like a good idea. Yeah. And it's not until after the fact you recognize maybe that person wasn't. Yeah, right. Sure. Usually following a good amount of alcohol. But what I'm saying <laughs> is that in a business standpoint, 
I was looking at the results right there instead of the length of who the person was. Yeah. Anybody can produce sales. I, 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 I can take somebody who's a good person and can speak well and I can turn them into a killer. In three years, I can absolutely turn you into a freaking killer. In fact, three to five years, if you follow, I can make you a millionaire. I guarantee it. I'm yeah. really good about making people. But see, that's the thing. It doesn't matter who you are. I can help mm-hmm. it, as long as you're a good person and whatnot. I can't make you a good person. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was, is I was basing my decisions of who to align with based on what they could do instead of who they were. Yeah. Which is why that helped me create my first core accountability with the help of some friends of pace, not push, mm-hmm. which is I need to pace in the rhythm of my work. I'm not going to push and force things to happen. Yeah. And so when I looked back, I asked myself the same questions. Like, am, am I, I, I looked, I said, wait a minute, I'm, I'm the center of these bad relationships. Doesn't mean other people, maybe I'm, like bad like i gotta have some self-insight maybe i'm the problem it's like the person that's been divorced eight times like oh i've gotten around bad people like well maybe you're the problem yeah i thought the same thing about myself but what i recognized was i believed it wasn't necessarily because i was an issue it was because of how i was moving was an issue mm-hmm. and i was committing myself to results in a moment instead of people at their core and then what happened was is over the length of the relationship their core and how they really moved came out and it causes friction and so that that nowadays like i said guilty until proven innocent it's mm-hmm. i'm going to assume that we don't have alignment so that way i'm not taken aback when we don't and i know how to move in that relationship and if we do how much more joyful and surprising and wonderful yeah. but if we don't that's okay and that's kind of how i learned that was through that recognition mm-hmm. i need to take special note of that that's 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 particularly pressing information right now. Um, and so you, you end up in a situation where you're parked at the Target parking lot. You don't know how this rent is going to get paid. What happens after that? Well, there were a couple moments in my life where, you know, people ask me about my faith and why I believe what I believe. It's because there are a few moments in my life where I have no other explanation other than God moved, honestly. And for, for an individual, if you're listening to this and that's not your belief system, I'm not attacking you or assaulting you. You can put whatever description you want to it. I cannot explain it in any other way. I was, I've been praying and praying and praying and break down the target parking lot. I'm like, all right, God, what, like you, you brought me here. What now? And the very next day I had an opportunity to partner with an agent on a listing that was 900,000. That was, so it would net me after splits and stuff, we'll call it almost $20,000 in income. Um, uh, And about a week or two later, I got a call from a client Mm -hmm. that wanted to buy a property. And what he described was exactly the one that I had just listed. So by the end of the month, I was able to, and he was a solid buyer. So I double ended it, uh, which in real estate, is the term for getting both buyer and seller. You get both ends of the commission. And I was with a partner on the sell side, so I didn't get all of it, but I ended up making, you know, 40 something thousand dollars or so, um, maybe after taxes in the thirties in like five weeks. And for someone that was freaking broke, broke, that was, that was huge. And so for me, what happened honestly was just, just God moved because yeah, you could say I've been priming the relationship and all that, but there is no other explanation as to why things came together as perfectly as they did in my mind. And so I'd love to say, oh, I just I put my head down and I worked my ass off. No, in reality, what it was is God moved and I had a breath now to where I could focus on actually building the business. 
So then I took those resources, put them back into the business, back into marketing, leaned into it, built relationships, got another deal that was a million and a half. And then a couple of, a lot of tiny little deals, but the next big one. And then I got, you know, I got my first listing that was two and a half. And then I got one that was four. Then I got one that was five and then 5.5. And then it just started growing. But that really kickstarted the whole momentum that I rode for the next, you know, four, four years. Yeah. I mean, that's always a crazy experience, you know, no matter what someone believes in, if they pursue their purpose, oddly enough, when they need it the most, at weird, strange moments, something will happen, Mm -hmm. you know, and put things together. It's a very strange principle of life. Um, Mm -hmm. Weird. But it's somewhere in that, you know, in that flood of years, you you got married, right? Where where did you get married? Married in Dallas. (laughs) Married in Dallas? That's right. I'm I'm a Dallas boy, so we got got married in Dallas and honeymooned in Italy for a few weeks when you could when you could do those things. Um, yeah, <laughs> when you can do those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before back when we were when the outside was open, so yeah. Uh, yeah, we got married here. It was it was a good time. Yeah, where where are you looking forward to going? You got married in like a a a, a what, like a cathedral or? A <laughs> yeah, I got, got married in a church in in Dallas, and um, wow, uh, it was it was wonderful. Yeah, I think. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big person that I, I love travel. So I'll be taking a trip to Colorado a little later this year. My brother and I have a, a goal to climb every 14 or which are mountains over 14,000 feet in the United States and eventually North America. Um, and so we've done a couple already, but we're going to knock off three or four more, I think at the end of this month. So I'm looking forward to that because I've been indoors for a little while and getting a little, little stir mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Um, where else is on your uh, bucket list of travel locations, especially since you're married? And, you know, who doesn't want to travel with their partner, you know, and see the world? Like uh, when you when you have the means, you know, uh, where, where do you want to go? Well, that's the cool thing about what we do now is my work in real estate. I was stuck here, but now I'm I'm all over. Right before COVID shut down, we were supposed to go to Mexico, to Canada twice, to Miami, to Austin, Houston, California. I mean, we're, we were supposed to do all that in like a three and a half, four week period. Uh, and and more, and mm-hmm. so honestly, all over. I mean, I, I, there's not one specific location. I, I'd like to go to the Swiss Alps. I'd like to go to Spain. I'd like to go. Um, got invited to go to Ukraine, which was interesting. Don't know about that one yet. But but I I I like. I just love travel. And my great uncle, going back to him, how these conversations take full circle. Yeah. Um, one of the most fulfilling things of his life was he traveled everywhere everywhere and he's seen amazing things you know this is back in the day he told a story about how he he rode a bike in germany with marching nazis back when they were just a political party and he would ride with you know uh he talked about you know in in, uh i think it's china where there's that huge underground um tomb where they have all the clay soldiers out of the different faces and there's just thousands of okay he was actually with the team that uncovered that he was there. Someone said, hey, we're on, on the verge of a discovery. Wow. And he wasn't on the team. He just got invited to be there that day and they uncovered. Mm-hmm. So, so he has all these incredible experiences that can only be happened when you break out of your shell and you get to see the yeah. world. And so um, beautiful. I, I'd, love to, I'd love to just go all over, man. I really yeah. do. I, I'm, I love traveling. It's amazing. I agree with you, man. Uh, definitely. Well, uh, I'm really going to only ask like one more question because while I'm not pressed for time or anything. I never am. It's really impossible to compress someone's entire lifetime and their entire essence into 
you know, a day or even even 24 hours. It, it wouldn't be without doing it justice, without going into all the, the, you know, the right details. There's so much more to cover, so much more that has been done. There's a, you know, the Obsessed Conference is coming on October 29th. It is. It's not publicly announced yet. I don't mind saying it here, but we are moving it to 2021. We have to confirm oh. a date just because of COVID. We want to be aware and we're kind of at a point now where, you know, there's so much that goes into a conference, so yeah. many moving parts. It's hard to keep them all together when COVID is putting hurdles yeah. and all sorts mm-hmm. of different things. So we are moving it to 2021. It's going to be right now we're looking at the end of April. Hopefully if that doesn't work then May of 2021, but uh, we are still putting it on. I don't care if what, yeah. what happened, putting that thing on. It's an amazing, amazing, really fun time. So it's going to be, it's going to be good. Yeah. So we, you know, we got the, obsessed academy obsessed conference there's there's a lot of things left to be covered um but i really want to just end on breadcrumbs what is that breadcrumbs is an idea um uh, it's this idea for like you talked about the phrase unhealthy obsession so my my signature message is healthy obsession living a life that actually is inspiring fascinating and motivating what that means how you identify it, how you implement it, how you sustain it, all of that. That's, that's healthy obsession uh, in a nutshell. But unhealthy obsession is before you know what something is, you have to know what something isn't. And yeah. so breadcrumbs are these tendencies that we fall back into, these ideologies yeah. and these chains that we think break, but in reality what happens is, is we just looked away and they still exist. It's, it's these, these, these moments in our life that keep us from pushing forward in the best way, be it relationships, financially, spiritually, professionally, whatever. And so breadcrumbs is this idea. I'm still toying with it. I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm going to present it in this way yet, but it's this idea of how do I how do I identify the tendencies that keep you from more that hold yeah. you back and not in some like, Oh, let's, you know, daisies and unicorns think, you know, Hey, we just smile and life goes on, but Hey, in a tactical and tangible way. Yeah. How do you sustainably break the things that are keeping you back? Because I was approached to write this book about healthy obsession, which I will. But I thought, well, before I write what everything is, we have to identify what it isn't because you have to do the work. And so that's my mindset of of doing the work. I'm going to take some time later this year and retreat and rest and focus on where I believe what, what specific message, because I have a couple that I believe God is calling me to, to draw out. And then at that mm-hmm. time I'll decide, but that, that's been on my mind for a little while, that breadcrumbs concept. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine it's a difficult thing, you know, when it comes to like things that are like uh, more conceptual, it's hard to really break them down into tangible steps. It's like, like, uh, like Omar, what is his name? Uh, Omar Elatar. You know, he does communication. It's hard to really break down how you communicate, like uh, in a way that's that's really two people interfacing rather than one person thinking about their thoughts and the other actually interfacing with that person. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, I did, I did actually have one more question. So, you bring people's gifts to the forefront, mm-hmm. and instead of them living in their weakness or defaulting to their weaknesses, as you say, and so that's what you're going to be doing out, you know, through the course of your life, and so. As much as you'll do that as the years go on and on and the decades pass, what does the world look like, you know, like uh, visually, like uh, even beyond, yeah, I guess in a spiritual way, in a, you know, in a, uh, in a, in an idea way also, but, you know, even visually, like what is, what does the world look like when you're done with it, you know? Hmm. I think my goal is 
I need to define a specific number of people to impact, but conceptually what it looks like is I believe that I'm here to shift the recognition of what it means to live inspired and on purpose. And that's done in a few key ways. I believe that if you have individuals that are taught how to take responsibility, identify their purpose, identify their giftedness, and then live that out and that truth, live that every single day, you'll have companies that have more sustainable cultures. You'll have less, fundamentally, you'll have less, uh, I think, less violence. If I can be so bold to say, you'll have less aggression. I, I see waves of people that are inspired and creative enough to actually continue to ignite change in their world, however big or small, because sometimes change begins at the end of your street, not at the end of the earth. And so um, I I see for me, it is, I want to shift the perspectives of society of, okay, when you wake up, how can we help you identify your strengths and your calling and your life? I use that term inspiring, fascinating, and motivating to where you wake up ignited and you come home fulfilled to where you're no longer thinking to yourself, oh my God, I cannot believe I have to sit here and go through this job again. But you're, <laughs> you're working in an environment yeah. that produces an end result that's so fulfilling that the work no longer has a place to complain about. Um, for me, tactically, that starts with ingraining in the work itself. How do we shift the work to where the work becomes a fulfilling part? But But it also leans back into your own identity of, you can't be the best you or whatever guru crap phrase you want to throw up there. You can't be the best you until you know what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Just like obsession to know what it is. You have to know what it isn't. So let's break off what it isn't. Let's equip you through working back through your life and going back through that luggage. Let's equip you through your experiences on identifying that gift and then build a strategy and a roadmap together on, on how you can live a life that leans into that to where you come home fulfilled. So I I think we have the capability to do that. Mm -hmm. I believe that we're building a narrative that isn't spoken to right now. And I think the world is is primed right now to hear it. I think people need to hear it. I think COVID more than anything created an opportunity for people to recognize how really unfulfilled they were in their work and they weren't admitting it. Mm -hmm. And we're here to change that. Yeah. Well, man, I think like you're saying more than anything, that's, that's, that's a, that's a beautiful message that the world needs to hear. Particularly, I don't, I, you know, I haven't really much experience with any other parts of history because I'm only 23 this year. Mm-hmm. But I think that's, that, I think that's true. You know, there's a lot of messages that are coming out, you know, a lot of ideas and movements that are, you know, being channeled through society. And a lot of them have a great, ideology behind them Mm -hmm. but you know because of the places they're coming from a lot of them you know when you pass you you know a lot of ideas and movements start off very beautiful but when you pass them through a lens of a stifled society they kind of take a on a life that's a little more aggressive and angry and destructive than it should be and uh i like that you know that element that that you like you know that you speak on in another podcast like about martin luther king like you know, he was gangster, but at the same time, he was about peace. And a lot of ideas that are great ideas are, so, you know, they're, they're soiled because they, they don't come through positive energy. And so I think your idea of providing that to the world, you know, a place where people are happy and at peace and fulfilled before they, you know, entertain messages and before they push out messages is something that 
that that is that is super important because you know even in terms of like let's say uh something more recent which i, I avoid speaking on these things but mm-hmm. you know like uh protest like the protests that are happening mm-hmm. you know beyond the fact of some people may riot the fact of the matter is that energy that emotion lives in you and it's not a radiance i mean it's not a ray it's a radiance if you're mad at someone that radiates throughout everything in your proximity and it's, it is a destructive energy and, and, and you know and i think that's one of the big changes that will occur as you continue to do your work more people um because you can see when somebody's come from like a, a an environment that's stressful and high you know uh when people are anxious you know we stereotype people not just by how they dress or what they wear their tattoos or anything like that but literally by how their physiology is interacting with the world like if you got stiff squared off shoulders you know you like like you 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 know the look i'm talking about i mean mm-hmm. you're you're very defensive and and, and and stiff in your posture i think as you do your work i hope to see a lot more people take that look that you that you know that's on your face you know a lot of people have that as owen cook would describe it a shark-like gaze and they're in a survival mode and you can tell their brain is moving frenetically you know to see people with their shoulders relaxed their face relaxed you know in a light smile and a look in their eyes that's softer would be, you know, I think, I think that's something that we'll see developing people. I hope. Well, uh, that's, that's my goal. I think there's a phrase that I love, which is don't mistake my kindness with weakness. Yeah. And this is, this is an important distinction and this. It, it might even come across slightly contrary to, to both of our narratives, but I actually think it goes hand in hand, which is um, I can be moving in love and I can be compassionate and I can be peaceful I am still extremely principled. Um, If you come after my family, I'll stomp on your neck and sleep like a baby. Mm. And and I know that that sounds freaking crazy, but but what I mean by that is, is not to be aggressive or to to even give like shock statements or anything. But what I mean is, is that you can be, you can be a freaking killer, man. Mm. And you don't have to be an asshole. Mm. Like that's it. You don't have to be an ass. You can be a killer. You can be a killer, man. I will love you all day. Don't you dare hurt my children. Mm. Doesn't mean I'm, you know, I, you can be a killer and you can be kind, right? Even, even Jesus had some moments where he can be kind and principled and bring justice to certain individuals. You yeah. can be as strong as you want, but I think the strength, strength begins in things that are hard. Les Brown said it best. If you do what is easy, life will be hard. And if you do what is hard, life will be easy and his cool sexy mm-hmm. less brown voice he's got that low rumble i can't i can't get it but yeah. the reason that i state that is because it's the same thing in how you move if you move in a way that's easy or things that you do reactively that's the ease if you yeah. move in a way that's reactive then life will be hard and so the way that i thought about it was when i looked at that statement taken from less brown and i started thinking about how i was applying it to my life i thought what what's easier to move is it easier for me to be angry and upset or is it easier for me to be compassionate, forgiving, and loving? Yeah, It's not easy to be loving. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what I'm going to practice. And then simultaneously, can I be loving without being weak and meek and stepped on? The answer is yes. It's just a balance. And that's, I think, real strength. You know, you and I can have an amazing conversation. And you can see, I am, uh, hopefully, I'm, I'm, I'm at peace, man. I just live a yeah, very peaceful Real peace. Life. But by the same token, that's not, that's not weak. You can be at peace, but it doesn't mean I'm about to attack you. Like I, I, I can know that you can exude 
strength and confidence. And I think that narrative, like you talked about, that's where all this begins is even shifting the narrative of, oh, well, if you're not aggressive like me, then you're weak. That's yeah. not true. Because I think that aggression stems from and such an unrelying confidence that you can friggin' dominate, that you don't have to be stressed about it. Like that, that's the, per, right? Whenever, you know, the, what do they say? The person that you don't want to fight with is the one that agrees to it. Like, man, you know, hey, <laughs> hey, like, let, let's roll. And it's like, okay, if you say so, man, you're about to die. <laughs> you're about to die. And so I think it's that same mentality, just in a more, a more tangible day to day. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I like that idea. I mean, even in a more animated way, retaliation doesn't require anger. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yeah, that's a huge addiction to anger. There's a huge addiction to fear. And uh, I think your work will solve a lot of that. Um, do you have anything you want to leave off on? Any final words? Not for life. Man, I, I, <laughs> I, I appreciate the good conversation. I think if anyone is in, in your... Uh, in your community is interested in connecting. I'm always open to connect. You can find me on social at real Evan Stewart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, just, I mean, we got started here. You slid into the DMS, just slide in the DMS, man. I'm, I'm open for conversation. And, uh, yeah. uh, yeah, I'd love to, to build a dialogue around, around what you're doing and what you're working towards and maybe find an opportunity to help. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. And also a lot of, you know, everything will be down in the description box where you can follow him, where you can uh, interact with Evan. Uh, a lot of you will most likely see me at the Obsessed Conference if you want to go there and chat and all that stuff. Um, man, I appreciate the conversation. Like you said, uh, I've never seen somebody exude peace like you do. I've never seen that. That's, mm-hmm. that's something that's new to me. Um, but I really appreciate you coming on. And um, I mean that in a real way. Like I say that so often. I mean that in a real way, but I do mean that in a real way. I appreciate it. You know, mm-hmm. um, the level of peace the level of, in, in, you know, empathy, you know, uh, the way we've interfaced in a way that is understanding and, and recognizing of the two entities that are here is, uh, is, 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 is special. And um, I don't know, I'm bad at closing out podcasts, but other than that, man, I really hope you enjoy your day. And I mean uh-huh. that in a real way, in a way where we recognize that this day is an individual day and not one in a collection. And it is beautiful and unique in its own right. I hope you have fun. As simple as that word is, I hope you have fun. I hope you have a good time, man. Man, I hope the exact same for you. Thank you for having me on and for the really engaging conversation. Truly, truly enjoyed it myself. Thank you for your story, Evan. Um, peace out, I guess. <laughs> Thank you, man. You're welcome, man. I appreciate it. I'll see you later. I'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm. True or false designers? Ghost riders in the modern era are completely outdated and no one should ever use a ghost rider again. Okay, now look, I understand everyone wants to write a book because it is the most effective way to build tribe and community around your central ideas in a profitable way. I understand that. It is the best way to push your ideas out into the world in the form of mass movements. And this is throughout history. Think of the communist manifesto think of the bible think of mein kampf you know every time you see an entrepreneur ask him how did he get started he'll say rich dad poor dad you know he'll say think and grow rich the best way to induct people into your tribe is through a book and there is no denying that but a lot of people they turn to ghostwriters 
because there is a gap between the ideas in their head and the words on paper. And that gap is filled with obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And I understand that. These are some of the things that I've experienced. Tell me if this is familiar for you. Man, writing my first book, it was just like a soup of ideas in my head and I didn't know where to start. Is that something you've experienced? Like it's like ideas floating around and you don't really know how to structure it. Is that something that you've been through? Like, where do I even put this in this chapter? Da, 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 da. And then all these blogs, they make a freaking outline. No one wants to make a freaking outline. You know, I could spend that valuable time I spent making an outline actually writing the book. How about that? Another thing is time. No one has the freaking time to write a real book. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you know, you have business to take care of or a, or a work to go to or family or actually life to enjoy that's not sitting at a freaking laptop you know well no one wants to spend 365 days of the year their entire summer sitting there two three hours a day crunching in words on a freaking laptop it's completely redundant it's ridiculous you know um that's just even daunting to think about three four five six seven eight nine months to put a book together in one that you're not even sure how to publish or market yet it's an insane amount of work for nothing. And another reason is that some people just might not be good at writing. Just simple and flat out. Is that something that you've experienced? Like, think about it. Like, sometimes writing is just freaking hard. And not everybody was born a writer. No one's born. And so, for these reasons, for these reasons, people turn to these writing coaches and these ghost writers. But, and this is coming from the position of a former ghost writer who's ghost written for people with businesses. Okay. Uh... They never really get what they're asking for. And the reason for that is this. And tell me if you've experienced this. Like, also, have you worked with a ghostwriter and they've given you something back and you're just like, eh? Well, it's like 100% of my clients probably have felt that way through our history. And the reason is because ghostwriting is like playing a game of telephone. You know, when you tell somebody a phrase and then you tell another person and you tell another person, and by the time you get back to the line, you probably played this in high school. By the time you get to the back of you know, the last person, they say the phrase and it's something completely different. When you pass your ideas through the mind of another human being, those ideas will not come out their mind or come out there in their writing without being tainted by their own mind. It's like telling a painter to paint your girlfriend and giving them like descriptions and things like that. Um, not really going to work out. You'll probably still accept it like, uh, this is the best we can get with the system that we're using, but it's not going to be the product that you actually asked for because it's coming through his perception. And because of that, ghostwriters are flawed. And I say this and I admit this as a ghostwriter, but I have good news for you. We're not living in the 1800s anymore where we need scribes. <laughs> you know, we don't, ghostwriters should never be used by anyone on his face of this planet after this year. You know, so I have a solution for you. This is the way that we do it at Memoir Launch. Think of your book, whatever your book might be, however big it might be. I don't care if your book is 500 pages long. That's a big, time-consuming, expensive, and complex thing. And on top of that, ghostwriters like to cost 25 grand for the subpar work they do. Okay? Think about your book. 500 pages is a massive, complex thing, right? Now, I, I like to be challenging, so I believe we can get your book done from cover to cover for way less expensive than a ghostwriter and exactly in your voice crystal clear 100% satisfaction in a span of seven days or less now you might be like uh that's kind of impossible no it isn't we don't live in the 1900s anymore. we live in the future 
And so how do we do that at Memoir Launch? The way we do that, just to keep it simple and not too complex, we rely on voice writing technology. We rely on you know machine learning, artificial intelligence to take that gap between the ideas in your head and actual text and shrink it. Like we, like we crush it into a span of seven days through new technology and methods. Let me explain to you how this process kind of works. You have these soup of ideas in your head and you don't know how to organize anything from anything. We get a little specialized team for you, maybe one or two people, and we do an interview series with you to bounce back and forth and kind of organize your ideas in a way that's actually like, uh, it reads well, one, and step two, it's actually effective. Because a lot of books, you put them out into the world and they're like, no one cares about them. It's like, you know, they're not effective because those are books. A book is like a letter. What we write for you is called a sales memoir. I'm not trying to get too complicated, so I'm gonna just completely explain this very briefly. A book is like a letter. A sales memoir is like a sales letter. Sales memoirs are the books that indoctrinate your audience and makes them join your tribe by default. Books like, like, like I said, Dot Com Secrets. You read Dot Com Secrets by Russell Brunson, you will become a funnel hacker because it's structured in that way. Most people write, read the Bible, they will become a Christian. Most people in the 1940s, they read the Communist Manifesto because of the way the ideas in the book were structured and you will become a communist. But how, it is, how is it that we structure our ideas in a way that reads well and place them in a book in a way that also indoctrinates? So that's step one. It's a small little interview series. You know, you kind of just talk about everything that you like. <laughs> you know, you, whatever you rant about on a daily basis, you just rant to us. A lot of people describe this process as therapeutic or whatever. And after we do that entire process, we take the audio and all we do, no matter if your book is 200, 300, 400 pages long, we just feed it to the AI. And immediately it pops out something that does not require a bunch of freaking editing from a freaking expensive editor, because these editors are ridiculously priced. It doesn't require a $25,000 ghostwriter. It doesn't require any of that. So what happens after that? Well, you get your manuscript first and foremost, and then second, that same team comes along with you in the third phase of the process, we publish the book for you, and then we begin to work on a little marketing campaign to actually get that idea in your head out into the world in a form of a mass movement, okay? Like all the thought leaders in the modern world has. How Tony Robbins has a book, how Russell Brunson has a book, how Frank Kern, everyone has a book. And it's following the same strategy and process they, has, they have. Now you might be thinking, this is too good to be true. Uh, <laughs> you know, go see for yourself. You know, if you're interested in this process, if you're interested in being part of the memoir launch beta, and it is in beta, and because it's in beta, you're getting a very, very, very one-time extreme discount. But if you want to be part of this beta and potentially get your book done, because it depends on your schedule also, in seven days flat, perfectly in your voice, and deliver it to your house in a hard copy and published then just click the link in the bio below of any of these podcast episodes. It'll be a link to like a website where you can join the waiting list. And when Memoir Launch is ready to launch, we'll start calling people on the waiting list. It's first come, first serve. And so if you sign up late, well, you're gonna get called pretty late. Um, but sign up for the waiting list. It'll be a link below. It'll be the only link below. And uh, once you sign up for the waiting list, we'll be in contact with you shortly and we'll help you 
launch your first sales memoir to the world. Okay, well, uh, I don't really know if I have anything else to say about that. Sounds like a cool process though, right? Well, this is uh, Dallas from Memoir Launch, and I just explained to you the best way to profitably push your ideas out into the world in a form of mass movements. So like I said, if you're interested in that, click the link uh, here in the podcast notes in the description, whatever you want to call it. And man, I really, 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 uh, the business, you know, the mission of this business, there's a handicap, you know, on writers in the world. There's a huge gap between idea and text. And a lot of people are handicapped. They can't clear that gap. And it's the mission of this business to invent technology that erases that gap once and for all. So I want you to be part of this cause, man. I really look forward to speaking to you. I look forward to working with you. I look forward to like knocking this out of the park and welcoming the future with open arms. So I'm not going to go on on and on. But uh, like I said, if you're interested in being part of the beta, if you're interested in being part of the future, um, click down below. Uh, For the beta also, the entire process of marketing your book, um, designing campaigns to actually launch that thing out to the world, completely free, by the way, completely free. And so click down in the bio below. It'll be a link down there. Uh, Without further ado, you know I suck at closing things out. This is Dallas from Grand Design and from Memoir Launch. And I look forward to speaking with you and actually helping you get these ideas out, man. Peace.